Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Years before P.T. Barnum founded Barnum & Bailey Circus, he had a different hustle. The Great American Museum. On New Year's Day of 1842, P.T. Barnum stood in front of a five-story building in Lower Manhattan. Fine, people of New York, today you have an opportunity to see some of the most exotic curiosities in the world. They will excite, delight, and mystify. People quickly began to clamor around Barnum. It was the opening of his American Museum. Step right up and see for yourself what lies just beyond that door. It'll be the best 25 cents you've ever spent. Barnum was a phenomenon in the mid-19th century. He wrote books. Hundreds of thousands of people bought them. People flocked to his promotions. They were fascinated by him. Barnum seemed to have the ability to always find something new and different to enthrall people. He was constantly coming up with new ways to promote his schemes. And this time, he believed that he landed on a real winner, an entire museum full of impossible or simply improbable sights. Behold, a real mermaid. People flocked to the museum to look at a fossil that Barnum claimed was of a mermaid. The mummified-looking animal was about three feet long with a small human-like skull and a rib cage, and the lower body of a fish. There were only a handful of so-called mermaid fossils in the world, and it was Barnum's prized jewel to have one. And now, watch this lion jump through a ring of fire. Alongside the museum displays, Barnum had magicians, glassblowers, and fortune tellers all of which would later set the stage for his traveling circus. The museum was a mix of curiosities and outright falsehoods. But that was kind of the whole point. Museum goers were meant to decide for themselves what was real and what was humbug, and he could get away with it too, because there weren't really any laws in place to tell him that he couldn't. See, to Barnum, bending the rules, twisting the truth, that wasn't wrong. It was entertainment. It was good business. Barnum once said, the American people like to be humbugged. For 25 cents, people could go to Barnum's American Museum and be dazzled, disturbed, duped. And they loved it. If you think about it, it's a tradition that we still see alive and well in pop culture today. If you think about 20th century culture, whether that's fiction or movies, the person engaged in fraud is often the hero. There's a lot of sympathy towards individuals who take other people in, especially when that fictional character is someone who lives by their wits. As much as we've embraced the card shark, the swindler, and the charismatic con man in our movies and books, 
we've also made space for them in our economy. This week, we roll back the clock to the 1800s to explore how something distinctly American, our love of entrepreneurial freedom, has made the U.S. a welcoming home for all kinds of fraudsters. I'm Alzo Slade, and this is Cheat, the show where we ask, is it ever okay to break the rules? This week, old school cheats, or in 19th century parlance, humbuggery and ballyhoo. How you doing, Doc? I'm doing very well. How are you, Alzo? I'm well, thank you. Just to start things off, you know, in a formal way, uh, if you could just tell us who you are and what it is that you do. I'm Edward Ballison, and I do research and I teach on the history of American capitalism, the dynamics of regulatory governance in modern societies. See, in the way that you described that, it felt academic. But I think you didn't do it justice because you wrote this book, Fraud. Yeah. An American history from Barnum to Madoff. I find it interesting because I'm a history buff myself. I love history. And, you know, we've been sold a certain aspect of American history that is popular. But they don't really teach us about this stuff that you talked about in this book. Mm. Let's start with a fundamental understanding of what you consider fraud to be? I'm going to answer it two different ways. When people are just talking to one another and they use that word, what do they mean? That tends to mean that there's somebody engaged in some type of of lying, and the lying led to some type of injustice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But then there's a legal definition of fraud, and that's a lot more complicated. So that entails... A lie, for sure, but it has to be an intentional lie. And it has to be a believable lie. This was the defense of the legal principle of caveat emptor. Let the buyer beware in Latin. Mm, I was going to ask you about that. Yes, let's discuss this. In the 19th century, this idea had a lot of power behind it, partly because most of the time people were transacting, whether that was a land deal or a commercial purchase. They were, they were dealing with people whom they knew. Then came industrialization, and the world suddenly got bigger and smaller all at once. Factories made it possible to produce more goods fast and cheaply. Railroads made it possible to ship all those cheap goods to faraway places. But because regulations weren't in place yet, it was harder to assess the quality of these goods that were being made. So. Enter the fraudsters. They could use this to their advantage. And as these social connections got more and more tenuous, caveat emptor became the de facto law of the land. So essentially, caveat emptor places much of the responsibility on the consumer to, to do your due diligence. And like, if, if you get tricked, it's because... You're the one that put the trust in the person. And hey, a school of hard knocks, if, if you got tricked, learn from it. Don't learn get tricked it. next time. <laughs> right, right. Now, America has been home to some of the most expensive and memorable frauds in history. Like Charles Ponzi, who in the 1920s created an early pyramid scheme which netted him $18 million in less than a year. 
he promised investors unheard of returns on their money. But the only problem is, this dude wasn't doing any investing. He just used the new investors' money to pay out the old ones. And then, of course, there's Bernie Madoff, who ran the largest Ponzi scheme in history to the tune of over $64 billion. What do they all share? Charismatic personalities, extraordinary personal confidence, and a capacity to project success, the outward signs of being successful. Really keen grasp of social psychology. They knew how other people ticked. They understood the emotional drives of investors, consumers. And they also appreciated this point about information asymmetry, that you could really take advantage of those gaps. I imagine that's important because it helps with your level of conviction when you're trying to convince other people of what it is that they want them to believe. I think it does. And it is, interestingly, I think one reason why many individuals who are winsome and charismatic and likable actually manage to avoid prosecution or conviction or are, even if convicted, able to get pardons. This is a longstanding story in American history. The sort of lovable fraudster who dances out of harm's way. Yeah. But other, the other thing that all these men have in common, they're all white men, too. Absolutely, which gives them much more ability to operate. They don't face the same kind of suspicion or antagonism that non-whites have faced in so many contexts in American history. And the same thing is true, honestly, for women in many right. cases. Yeah. You name a lot of popular scams in the 19th century, and some of these techniques are still being used like the pump and dump and the bait and switch. What are those? Well, the pump and dump is the most basic kind of investment fraud. The idea behind it is to build up enough public interest in a given company that is selling securities, particularly stock, so that you drive the market for that security up. You build demand for it. And because there's more demand, the price goes up. And the people doing this are insiders. Uh, there were a lot of different techniques in the 19th century for getting this going. Um, one of the classic locations for this were mining companies. So if there was a big mining strike, somebody discovers gold or silver or copper in some region of the country, public fascination would just shoot up. And associated with every one of those mining rushes, was the promotion of fraudulent companies. How would you do that? You try and get the word out about uh, supposed discovery in the newspaper. You might pay a journalist to do that. You might uh, send out pamphlets across the country. And you would cite the mine that you were raising money for in the geographic region where a legitimate mine had just opened up and was fabulously successful. Mm, see, this sounds to me like the 1800s version of the fire Festival. Early efforts at this type of pumping and dumping led to greater checks. People wised up. And so increasingly investors would presume that you need to show profits before they would 
invest in your mining company. Mm -hmm. uh, they might want to see physical geological evidence of what was found in the mine. They might want a report from a geologist certifying that this was a right. legitimate find. But interestingly, all of those things could be fabricated, fabricated as, well. as well. Yeah. So you get the fake engineer's report or you get the magazine that sets itself out as uh, the arbiter of what's legitimate and what's fake. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But as soon as you can bribe that editor, you can engage in a more sophisticated pump and dump. Or you can bring people on a tour of the mine and you can show them that there are diamonds in it. But you've just salted those diamonds. You've placed <laughs> them there. <laughs> so what about the bait and switch? A uh, nice example there is the marketing of lightning rods in the 19th century. <laughs> so as lightning rod technology emerged, it was a huge benefit to farm families, especially in areas of the country that were prone to thunderstorms. So you had firms that were taking advantage of people's fears to sell them lightning rods on unfair terms. And often this involved the bait and switch. So what did this look like with lightning rods? Especially in a new area that maybe had just been settled, a company might send out salesmen, they'd go to early settlers in a given area, and they would say, hey, we want to start selling lightning rods in this, in this region, and we'd like you to be the demonstration family. We're gonna sell you at a really bargain rate some lightning rods so that your neighbors can see them and then we'll have a, an entry, an avenue into, into selling to them too. And they'd make all kinds of promises. That was the bait. And then they'd have a contract. And the contract was filled with small print that said many different kinds of things different from the verbal promise. The verbal promise might have been even, we'll let you have the lightning rods up on your house for a while, see if you like them, and then you can decide whether or not you want to buy them. The contract actually often then created debt. The farmer had actually signed, not realizing it, to purchase the lightning rods on an installment plan over, say, a certain number of months. And once that contract existed, the firm could then put pressure on the farmer to sign a promissory note further uh, acknowledging the debt, or they could even just sell the contract to a third party. And because of the way debt law worked in the 19th century, the holder of that financial obligation, you couldn't bring a defense in court on the basis of any lies or fraud in the mm. original transaction. Yeah. Are there any like scams or scammers that are lesser known in history that you came across that you thought were just ridiculous or crazy? Um, well, I mean, there are a lot of scams where you you see it unfold and you just wonder who could have gone for it? This is what we want to know. Tell us about one of those. So in the late 19th century, there was, I believe it made its way into the very early 20th century, there was a firm in Cincinnati called the Arctic Refrigerator Company. And they sold refrigerators, but not electric ones. That was still to come. These didn't have Freon. The initial refrigerators were just metal, and they were just a place where you could put ice and they were insulated. And this particular company claimed to have a chemical that it could add to the ice that would make it stay colder for longer. That's pretty good. 
<laughs> Sounds good, right? So they they were um, primarily actually defrauding franchisees. They sold this um, refrigerator by f- franchises. And so they were, the biggest source of funds was actually getting people to buy a franchise to be able to sell these refrigerators. The chemical that they added was something called Glauber's salts. And this was just hilarious to me when I came across this because Glauber salts was a crucial item used by alchemists who claimed to be able to turn base metals into gold for centuries. So they're they're keeping up with the the tradition and the legacy exactly. of fraudsters. Exactly. And yet, if you step back for a second and you're thinking about this case not from the perspective of the early 21st century, but you're trying to put yourself in the shoes of people at the time. There were a lot of experiments going on with refrigeration. There were a lot of claims showing up in newspapers and trade magazines. There was a lot of excitement about refrigeration, a lot of uncertainty about what really was going to work. And in that context, if you're looking for an opportunity and you maybe don't have that much education and you're looking for a way forward and you don't want to work for someone else, you value that independence of proprietorship that has been a very powerful value in American life, again, from the 17th century onward, really, in many communities. Well, maybe it's not so surprising that a lot of people got taken in. But all of that was about to change when the government decided to crack down on a massive mail order operation. But who owned it? The answer may surprise you. That's after the break. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared Bin Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. In the mid-1890s, a Midwesterner named Richard W. Sears had a flourishing mail-order business. In a glossy catalog over 200 pages, people could order pretty much anything they wanted, from jewelry to guns to a sewing machine. This was a big deal, especially for folks who were living in rural areas, far from department stores. And this fella Sears, he was clever. He was sometimes referred to as the Barnum of merchandising. He developed selling techniques that weren't exactly fraud, but they weren't exactly honest either. Now, you you open your book with Richard W. Sears. And what's crazy is, like, I grew up going to Sears. And it's interesting how these kind of capitalist institutions, these corporations become a fabric of the identity of America and then almost kind of, like, 
a, a fabric of your nostalgic identity. And so when I'm reading this Richard W. Sears, first of all, I didn't know his name was Richard W. <laughs> you know, I just know Sears, you know, and I'm thinking, what? this? I didn't know from where he began, but reading the narrative in your book, it made me realize that, yes, there's the history of fraud, deception, and all of these things is is a part of this country, you know? So as you noted, Sears is very much an icon of American capitalism. So why did I open the book with Sears? Because the case that I talk about so nicely gets at this issue, which is how hard it can be to distinguish deceit from puffery or enthusiastic marketing or optimism. So Sears had to reach consumers and he had to stand out to do that. So he used what at the time would have been referred to as ballyhoo. <laughs> he was filled with all kinds of tricks just to get people's attention. He would offer prizes to the first 10 people from a state who ordered some particular good. He would offer amazing discounts, all kinds of promotional tactics, many of which now are just part of the fabric of what we think of as ordinary marketing. But at the time, they were more innovative. And trying to build the scale of business that he was trying to build was very unusual. And in fact, there was a lot of suspicion. How in the world can you sell goods so cheaply? How can you sell so many different types of goods? And it turned out that Sears actually had a lot of difficulty in the early years meeting exactly what he promised. So he would say, okay, uh, you can buy this type of a suit or this other kind of clothing for this price. And people would order that. And then he would not be able to actually find manufacturers who could produce the item to the scale that was necessary with all the orders coming in. In fact, he had so many orders coming in that sometimes people working at Sears would just burn them because they literally could not keep up. So there were a lot of consumers that had complaints, but there were also a larger number of consumers who were incredibly happy with what Sears was providing them, even when he was on the margin misrepresenting a little bit. And so this becomes really interesting to me in part because by the late 19th century, the American post office started policing honesty in commercial transactions that involved the mail. And they had uh, the power to do this through a congressional statute that was passed in the early 1870s that created a new crime, mail fraud, and also gave the post office a lot of administrative authority to police the mails. And it, it gave them the power to issue something called a fraud order. And if the post office decided that you were not telling the truth in your interactions with investors or consumers as a business, they could just issue this fraud order against you. And that meant you couldn't receive mail and you couldn't send it. So that would essentially be like a mark of death for uh, a person. It, it's like a commercial Sears. death sentence. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. In the late 19th century, you really had to depend on the post office. Realizing that his empire was about to collapse, 
Sears traveled all the way from Chicago to Washington, D.C. with a briefcase full of letters from banks promising that he was on the up and up. Authorities chose to believe him, but the crime of mail fraud was here to stay. By the end of the 19th century, officials became interested in investigating fraudulent lotteries, counterfeit money, and fake brokerage firms. Why do we have accounting as a profession? Because the ability of corporations to cook their books began really undercutting the ability of securities markets to function. Nobody trusted whatever a corporation said. Okay, well, let's create accountants who will go in and look at the books and certify that they're legitimate. And then let's certify the accountants. So where are we today? We'll talk about that after the break. At the beginning of the book, you also wrote that some economic deception is, of course, endemic to modern capitalist societies and that business fraud has occupied a large public footprint in the United States. So basically, fraud and deception is in the DNA of the United States. So how was this country built by cheaters? <laughs> well, I would put it a, maybe a little bit differently. So... Take the fraud order, for example, as a departure point for this question that you've posed. You can cut out deception if you're willing to make it sufficiently painful. If anytime there's a sniff of a possibility that a business is engaging in any kind of deceptive behavior, you have uh, some type of commercial police force that's going to shut it down, you're not going to have that much deception but you're also not going to have that much economic activity. So the challenge is allowing for the free flow of, of commercial interaction and giving some leeway for innovation, which has value because when you get innovation, a new type of technology, a new type of business model, a new way of organizing economic life, there are benefits that come from that. So innovation is a value, but along with innovation comes deception. So how do you balance these things off against one another? That's the challenge. Mm -hmm. How much fraud are you willing to accept? Because it is hard to police. It is hard to tell sometimes where that line is between enthusiasm or unjustified optimism and intentional deceit. This conversation has made it clear that scammers and corporate fraud is here to stay. Is it possible to, to curb the scams? or And if not, why is it so hard to combat it? Well, I, I think it's important not to overstate the incidents as well. Yes, we have a lot of scamming. Yes, we have a lot of fraud. But it does tend to burn itself out. Once a certain number of people have been defrauded, that particular scam doesn't work so well anymore because the word gets out about it. Right. In the 19th century, newspapers, trade journals emerged to vouch for the legitimacy of businesses and business models and technologies and modes of doing business. Problem is, as we talked about earlier, all of those things can then be fabricated. So eventually, you know, government became more substantially involved and in many different ways by providing mechanisms of trusted public education to reduce the information asymmetry, 
by requiring truthful information disclosure, whether that's about the weight inside the cereal box or the quality of this or that kind of fabric, that, hey, there are these now legal obligations to provide truthful information to investors or consumers. And then there have been all kinds of other mechanisms that have been put in place to protect honest purveyors of goods and services and consumers and investors themselves from depredations in the marketplace. None of it's perfect, right. but all of it can have an impact if there are you know, enough resources behind it and you have sufficient commitment and mission within the organizations that are charged with looking out for consumers or for investors. Completely understood. And that begs the question of, well, we know that there's fraud and we know that there's corporate fraud. But then if the organizations, especially within the government that are charged with checking corporate fraud, are also fraudulent, then we got a whole nother problem that we don't have time to get into now. But it is it is interesting to to recognize that there have been cases of, you know, I think the general public A lot of people consider the government to be fraudulent in many ways. And if they're the people responsible for checking fraudulent corporations, then we might be in trouble. And that that was another reason that many people in the 19th century said, just rely on caveat emptor, it's better. Right. Because if you're going to look to the government and the people in the government turn out to be corrupt, it's not going to go well. (laughs) We're screwed. (laughs) Well, Doc, I appreciate the time. This conversation has been very informative. Alzo, just (laughs) such a pleasure. Great to meet you. Likewise. Thank you so much. Edward Ballison is the author of the book, Fraud, An American History from Barnum to Madoff. Hey, folks, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Cheat wherever you get it. And please do leave a rating and a review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And, of course, we want more listeners. Also, if you want to listen to the show without the ads, you can subscribe to Cheat Plus. It's like Cheat, but better. It's just $2.99 a month, or if you're in the U.K., £2.49. And you get all of this without having to listen to those annoying commercials. Just go to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe instead of follow. You can try it for free now. Next time on Cheat. He told me that no matter what it actually was, this growing lump, it was going to grow to such a size very quickly that it would become a deformity. And either way, it would have to be removed. And so I really felt like there wasn't any other choice. Cheat is presented by me, Alzo Slade. This episode was produced by Casey Georgie. The executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. The series editor is Megan Dietrich. The original idea for the show was developed by Tom Fuller. Mixing and scoring by Martin Peralta at Output Media. Special thanks to the Sony legal team. Our production coordinators are Jennifer Mystery and Iker Egbatola.